This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, nine if necessary, which means to, in the privacy of your priesthood, in silent prayer, admit or acknowledge any known sins to God the Father. You're instantly forgiven, restored to fellowship, recover the filling of the Holy Spirit, and prepared for worship. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're indeed grateful that we have this opportunity to gather together to study your word this evening, to be refreshed by what your word says, to learn to think biblically, to be challenged in our own spiritual life, to advance and grow, to rely upon God the Holy Spirit, to be reminded of your faithfulness, your steadfastness, and the importance and priority of your word in our lives. We pray that you would guide and direct us this evening, that we would be responsive to the challenge that the Holy Spirit brings us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Hebrews 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. We may be in these first four verses for a number of weeks because they are jam-packed with crucial foundational references, references that most people don't fully understand, each phrase, each clause is loaded with doctrinal significance and doctrinal impact, much of which is, is developed out in the, rest of this, in the rest of this epistle. So we'll take some time laying the foundation here, going through this clause by clause, and we're beginning with the key key clause at the beginning, and that's the main idea of these four verses, which represent one sentence in the original Greek, and that is that God has spoken. Right there in the second verse, you don't have God mentioned. Uh, God is mentioned in the first verse, but He is the subject of the verb spoken that you have in the second verse. So the key, the subject of these verses is God. The main verb is spoken. And the thrust, the main thrust of these four verses is that God has spoken to us by means of His Son. 
Everything else in these four verses has something to do with expanding on that idea. But the main idea is that God has spoken to us in these last days by means of His Son. Now, before he makes that statement, the writer reminds us that God spoke previously. And that that, what he will develop in the first chapter is that that previous revelation was not complete. It was a partial revelation. It was an incomplete revelation. And it was not as full as the revelation that comes with finality in the person of the Son. So he starts with verse 1 saying, God, or literally it's after God spoke in a variety of, in in various fragments and a variety of forms. That's the corrected translation, not what you see on the screen. What's up on the screen is the New King James. But it's a, we've seen the exegesis of this. It's after God spoke in a variety of, of, in, in various fragments and a variety of forms. In time past to the fathers by means of the prophets. In a nutshell, he's talking about Old Testament revelation. He's talking about the fact that God revealed himself, but that revelation in the Old Testament was fragmentary and it involved a variety of different forms, but it was by means of the prophets. So we started off two weeks ago talking about revelation, and we looked at Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18, and we saw that there were two tests outlined in those two chapters to indicate how you could evaluate a claim to God speaking. Everybody comes along and says that that God has spoken through them. Muhammad said God spoke through him. Joseph Smith says God spoke through him. There's all kinds of folks who've come along down through history who claim that God has spoken through them. And just because they make that claim, even if it's backed up by miracles, signs and wonders, or, or fulfilled prophecy to some degree, God warns the Jews in Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18 that the test is, number one, Deuteronomy 13, doctrinal consistency. Doctrinal consistency, that what they say is consistent with what has been already revealed. In that passage... God says, there may be someone who comes along, a dreamer of dreams, a worker of miracles, and he says, God said, let's go after other gods. Well, see, the issue isn't that he had miracles. There may be miracles, but it's not the miracles, it's the message. And if the message doesn't fit with what has previously previously been revealed, then he's a false prophet. Deuteronomy 18, the issue is prophecy. If the claim to speak prophecy isn't fulfilled 100%, if it's 99%, he's a false prophet and he's to be executed. So those are the two tests. And what this tells us, bottom line, is that the statement, God says this, is a serious, serious statement that carries a weight of obligation on the person that that the statement of God is addressed to. This is not something where you wake up and you say, Oh, I read through Proverbs this morning. God spoke to me. Now, when God speaks in the Old Testament, this is a a, a weighty thing, an important thing. And you see that God, when God speaks in the Old Testament, we traced it through. 
We went through Genesis 1. We see the very first statement about God is, and God said, let there be light. And this is a verbal statement. It is not something that God thought. It is something that God said out loud. In fact, when you come to uh, Hebrews 11:2 and says that uh, by the word of God the worlds were framed, the word used there for word isn't the Greek word we find in other places such as uh, Hebrews 1:3 or Hebrews 4:12, which is the word logos. It's the synonym rhema, and the Greek word rhema means a spoken word. It's not just the word in abstract, it is the spoken word. So that the worlds were framed by the spoken word of God in Hebrews 11.2. So God speaks out loud, He speaks audibly, He speaks in a manner that can be recorded, that can be objectified. And we went through a number of places in Genesis, looked at a number of different Places where God appeared and God spoke. Now, that's not to say that God never spoke in a private way. And we saw one example with the older prophet in 1 Kings chapter 13 that when God finally did reveal something through him that the young prophet was going to die, that it must have been a more private communication. But the principle was that whenever God does anything in private, he always validates it through some sort of confirmatory miracle or fulfillment of the prophecy as we have in that particular situation. So that the revelation of God is not like the the revelation of other gods and other religions. It can be validated, it can be verified, it can be authenticated, and it has objective criterion. And so you apply that. Well, all through the Old Testament you had the ongoing operation of prophets. And if you look at Hebrews chapter 1, I'm going to try to see if I can draw this out on the overhead. If you look at verse 1, we'll just put the reference right here. Hebrews 1.1 talks about Old Testament revelation. Hebrews 1.2 then talks about New Testament revelation. Starting in verse 3 and going on into verse 4, the focus shifts from the God speaking to the qualifications of the Son through whom He speaks. Okay? That's the shift. And 3 and 4 establish that, and then that is developed in verses 5 down through the end of chapter 1, down through verse 14. All of that established the, establishes the criterion, the bona, fides, uh, the bona fides of the Son of God, and why He's the one through whom God spoke. And it is stated with such an, with such an emphasis that it carries with it the implicit idea of finality. Now, this isn't an overt statement, so you can't go to Hebrews 1 and say, okay, this proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that New Testament revelation was going to cease. You just can't do that. But it's implicit in the argument. I mean, this argument really doesn't make sense if God's going to continue revealing Himself in terms of special revelation down through the church age. Now, let's go back and review that. I made a point of this. In fact, I remembered an ordination uh, several years ago that uh, one of the candidates was asked to explain what gen- the difference between general and special revelation, and he sat there dumbfounded. I mean, this is so basic to theology, he should have been run out of the 
auditorium on a rail that instant. General revelation, basic, first page of any bibliology text. General revelation is the nonverbal, non-spoken, non-specific revelation of God through, usually through His creation. Nonverbal, non-specific. The, Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. We learn certain things about God by looking at the effects of what He has done. That's nonverbal revelation. You can't base doctrine on general revelation. You have to have special revelation. Special revelation is verbal and it is specific. It is based on the very words of God. Now, I forgot something to, to, I was going to bring in to read to you tonight to just make this point. But I think I remember it. This last week, some of us attended a, uh, a concert that was in town, Christian concert, and we enjoyed that. And they had a magazine, and it was the, it was the Gathers were in town. If you don't know who they are, they've written probably more contemporary Christian music. Some of it's pretty good. Uh, but Gloria Gaither demonstrated her... This is the mentality of the Pentecostal movement. And it was, she, she interviews Beth Moore. Some of you know who Beth Moore is. She teaches the Bible over here at, at, at First Baptist, and her ministry there has just developed into sort of a worldwide uh, ministry. And she asked this question. Well, you've had such a tremendous uh, ministry at teaching the Word, but don't you think that the words get in the way of people worshiping God. The words get in the way of people worshiping God. Or maybe she said it something like that, that people just spend so much time being concerned about the words that they, they, they forget about the fact that it's supposed to lead them to worship the Lord. We don't know anything about the Lord without the words. I mean, but, but see, once you get into this mentality, well, all we're going to do with the words is, is argue and fight about theology and fight about doctrine. It's all divisive. Let's just get together and hug each other and sing songs that make us feel good. You've just slipped into ecumenicalism, and this is the core of the problem in the Pentecostal, in the Pentecostal movement, is that in order to be able to go forward, you've got to just, just reject any kind of deep theological study because it's just going to lead to division and we're ultimately about just enjoying the unity in Jesus. So it's just it's just really sad. But in fact Beth Moore just sidestepped the whole question and she didn't really answer. I mean her answer was given but it didn't address or the the, the question at all in terms of, of uh what was asked. But it was that's the mentality that's out there is that the words get in the way of worshiping the Lord. And that's just the opposite of what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches us that you have to understand the words. The Bible is not inspired in terms of, in terms of images or ideas or concepts. Ideas and concepts can shift with the words. You change the words. You change the, a word from red to crimson, you've changed the image in a person's mind. And words are important. Words communicate ideas. And God inspired the Lord. God inspired the words through the Holy Spirit. Now, what we see happening here in uh, in the first couple of verses of Hebrews, 
is picked up again. See, after you get out of these verses, there, there's this movement by the author to establish why the words of the Son are superior to anything else. And that implies a finality because after, after the Son, there can't be anything that equals that. So you move over here. You have Old Testament Revelation in one, one New Testament Revelation. Now turn to the next chapter. Just turn the page to chapter 2, verse 1. 2, 1 through 4 is the application of the first chapter. Remember, it's a fi- as I said in the introduction, this is a five-point sermon. Each point has a doctrinal development and exposition followed by an exhortation or challenge to application. And the challenge to the first 14 verses is given in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, indicated by the therefore. It's a conclusion. Therefore, because God has spoken through His Son, that's what the main idea of the first chapter because God has spoken through His Son, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have what? We have heard. This is serious. You can't just take it for granted because you've got doctrine day in and day out. You've got a tape recorder and you can listen to it. This is the most significant thing in all of history. Nobody else has had the kind of teaching that is available today. And yet, because it's, it's so available, we tend to take it for granted. And so if, if something else comes up, well, it's okay, I'll miss Bible class this week, I'll miss Bible class next week, I'll just get the tape. That is trivializing the Word of God. This is the most significant thing in the world. God has spoken. And the only way you can learn, it's like when Jesus is talking to Peter, says, why are you all still hanging with me? Everybody else is gone. And Peter said, because you, you have words of eternal life. See, nothing else matters in life except understanding doctrine. When it's all said and done, you can't take the toys with you. You're just left with how much doctrine is in your soul. So the writer of Hebrews says, Therefore we must give more earnest heed. That indicates diligence. To the things we've heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through the angels proves steadfast, what's that? That's the Old Testament revelation, specifically the giving of the Mosaic Law, which is mediated through the angels. If the word spoken through the angels proves steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. Here's the issue. If the, if the message of the angels, which was a fragmentary lesser revelation, carried with it weighty consequences of, of retribution for disobedience and blessing for obedience then what do you think about the New Testament revelation which comes through a superior source, the Son? I mean, if God's going to wallop the Jews as seriously as He did, and they had an inferior, limited, partial revelation, then how much more is He going to wallop us in the church age if we neglect this message? That's verse 3. How shall we escape... This kind of punishment if we neglect so great a salvation. And see, everybody takes that verse out of context, and they think that's talking about phase one, justification, salvation, the great message that we have salvation from the penalty of sin by faith alone and Christ alone. 
But that's not how the writer of Hebrews uses the word sozo. He's talking about the whole package, especially its ultimate realization at phase three, when we're absent from the body, face to face with the Lord, in front of the judgment seat of Christ, ready to receive our rewards and our evaluation for what we've done to prepare us for the service in the kingdom. How shall we neglect, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord? See, that's this second revelation. See how these four verses fit the first four verses. Spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard Him. See, the remarkable thing is Jesus Christ had three and a half years of ministry on the earth. He didn't write a thing. Who wrote it? The apostles. The delegation of the writing responsibility was given to the apostles. And that's the point in the next verse. To validate their authority. God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders. This was specifically the, uh, a criteria for apostolic uh, ministry. God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. So what we see is that God gives a fragmentary revelation in the Old Testament that carries with it certain consequences. These consequences are intensified because now it comes through the Son. But the Son doesn't record it. The Son delegates it to a specific group of people called apostles. And they are the foundation of the New Testament. And what's implicit in this statement is that when they're off the scene, there's no more special revelation. When they're off the scene, there's no more of God speaking in the way He spoke in the Old Testament and New Testament in terms of special revelation. Now, we may be able to get away with saying that, uh, if you want to be precise, that God spoke to me through His Word this morning. That's valid. God speaks to us only through His Word today. But the more technical term for that is the illumination of the Holy Spirit as we have seen. Now, as we went through our study last week and the week before, the, the, the focal point of that was to look at the dynamics of revelation in the Old Testament. And as you go through the Old Testament, you see that that revelation, once again, was verifiable. It was objective and you, could, and you could validate it. But it ended at a particular point in time. There is a purpose to revelation. God isn't just revealing Himself just to satisfy our curiosity. God only reveals Himself at His volition, not at man's volition. You can go, if you were living in the Old Testament, you can go out in the wilderness and fast and pray and go through all kinds of gyrations, but God's only going to reveal Himself when He wants to reveal Himself because of His purposes in the unfolding, progressive disclosure of Himself in the Old Testament. And when that body of knowledge was complete, God was silent. God was silent for 400 years. Malachi was the last 
revelation given in the Old Testament. And it sets a precedent that God doesn't have to speak all the time. God is not going to necessarily continue the process of special revelation. It reaches a point when the body of knowledge is complete and he is silent. Now, what happens in the New Testament? Well, then God spoke through his Son. And so the new revelation began at the point where Gabriel appeared to Mary and also to Joseph in the announcement of the, uh, of the birth of, of John the Baptist as the herald of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so you have new revelation, but this is the revelation, the revelation that comes through the Son, who is the ultimate revelation of God the Father, who God is. John uh, chapter 1, verse 18 says, No one has seen the Father at any time. The only begotten has revealed Him. So this is the function of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that revelation or the inscripturation of that revelation is given through the apostles. They are the foundation of the church. Now, how do we know that revelation has ceased? Now, this is a big question, a crucial question. How do we know it stopped? How do we know that there aren't apostles today? How do we know that there aren't prophets today? How do we know that revelatory responsibility didn't continue down through the ages? What well, gives us the right to say that the canon closed? Why isn't it just open? And see, there are many people today running around who claim that God is speaking to them and that these gifts did not cease, that the gift of apostle didn't, didn't cease. In fact, this last week I uh, was reading an article about a professor at Fuller Theological Seminary by the name of Peter Wagner. Now, this is really interesting stuff. Peter Wagner was the head of the missions department at Fuller Seminary. Fuller Seminary, for those of you who don't know, was named after Charles E. Fuller, who was a great evangelist in the 40s and 50s. And when Fuller was founded, Fuller was solid theologically. It's in Pasadena, California. But they threw out the doctrine of inerrancy in the uh, mid-60s, I believe. And so they no longer hold to, to, to that. Well, Peter Wagner came on board. He had been a missionary down in Bolivia, I, I believe, and he came on board as the head of the missions department. Now, what happens when you throw out inerrancy is all of a sudden, eventually, theology starts getting really fluid because the Bible may not be fully the Word of God, or there may be more, okay? And I sat down and had an interview with Peter Wagner about 1989 in his office. I was doing some research for a paper I was working on in my, in my doctoral studies, and I was out in Southern California, and I spent about an hour with him. And uh, at that time, he had become involved in a movement called the Signs and Wonders Movement or the Vineyard Movement, or it was also known as the you know, John Wimber Movement. John Wimber was a pastor of the Vineyard Church. John Wimber was a was not only a disciple but also a mentor of Peter Wagner. And they were having, it was very controversial in the mid-'80s, they were con have, had a class at Fuller Seminary on signs and wonders, a practical course, a practicum, how to do it. Let's learn how to do signs and wonders. And they're, you know, they're, they're learning how to do miracles and give sight to the blind. They're trying to raise people from the dead and, 
all kinds of stuff. I mean, you just can't imagine what they were going through. So I went out there and I was interviewing uh, Peter Wagner, and the whole vineyard movement kind of sprang from that one course. And that was kind of on the fringe of the uh, charismatic movement at that time. And it gave birth to some under, other really uh, wonderful sub-movements, such as the Kansas City Prophets, and they had a big impact up there in Kansas City. And I remember at the pastor's conference that we had in Kansas City in 1990, Tommy and I escaped from the other conservative doctrinal pastors, and we spent an afternoon with the, with the whacked-out Kansas City Prophets interviewing them to find out what they were into. So I've had a lot of fun over the years. And uh, this stuff has really just gotten wilder and wilder and wilder. And then there was a group in Toronto in the early 90s developed something that was termed the Toronto Blessing. And this goes beyond the second blessing, and they were laughing in the spirit, and they would, they would run around the church until they, until they all fell down, and, and they would cackle like hyenas and bark like dogs and... So all of this came out of the vineyard movement. Well, now, well, John Wimber died of a heart attack about five or six, seven years ago. He couldn't heal himself. In fact, one time I was out there for a spiritual warfare conference. I was staying with, uh, with George Meisinger, some folks in his church, and I was going to the spiritual warfare conference, and they, were, they, were, uh, they had this guy named Paul Kane, who was some old relic that came out of the early... Uh, uh, healing revival movement in the late 40s that disappeared for years and came back. And he, that's a whole other story, the heresy that goes on there. They finally exposed his homosexuality a few years ago in a big thing. I mean, it just, it just goes on and on and on. But um, he was seeing blue lights that were hovering over people that were, that were saved, just sort of like a Kmart blue light special. And I was there that night, and I didn't see anything. And the next day they talked about, and of course everybody believed it, they talked about how as these blue lights came in, they were, the power of the Holy Spirit was so great that it just blew the electricity. And I said, I don't remember the electricity going off. But everybody went, yeah, yeah, wasn't that neat? I was here. I didn't see the electricity go off. But I was praying like I've never prayed before. You just feel like you got demonic activity everywhere. And what was really sad was the I saw two or three classmates of mine from Dallas Seminary who were there just, just sucking it up. Oh, isn't this good? This is where we are in evangelical Christianity today. And, and now where, where I'm going with this lengthy Anna Caluthan is that Peter Wagner now claims to be an apostle, and there's a resurrected apostleship today. And he's got a whole group of charismatic pastors around the country that are all part of this council of the modern, uh, that's not the correct term for it, but that's essentially uh, the council for the new apostolate. And so when you have new apostles, you're going to get new, new revelation. And the question is, how do we know that revelation has ceased? And you're going to be asked that question. Some of you have charismatic family members. Some of you work with people who are charismatics. And people are going to say, how can you say that God's not speaking anymore? I mean, I've heard people, I've gone to my church, I've heard people give testimony. They have signs and wonders. And I usually take people back to Deuteronomy 13 and say, look, the verse 3, verse 4 says that God lets this happen to test you to see if you're going to love the Lord your God or you're going to follow after this stuff and you're failing the test. Well, they don't like that, but you, you, you just take them gently through these passages and say, how do you validate that these prophecies are true? Is there any objective evidence? Uh, 
that they're 100% true, and you go through the criterion. But you always have to figure out how do you answer this with people and present a, a, a case, because the other approach, and I, had, I, I was interviewing for a church in Dallas one time, and one of the men in the church who was quasi-charismatic said, well, it just sounds to me like you're putting God in a box. No, the, the issue is that God has revealed how he will function and operate in different, in different dispensations. And so it's not that I'm putting him in a box. I'm recognizing that God is dispensationally revealing himself. And he does it in different ways in different times. And that young man eventually, uh, after being under my ministry for about four or five years, uh, completely changed his whole approach and finally got rid of his charismatic, charismatic tendencies. But how do you do this? How do you demonstrate that, these, that this revelation has ceased? Well, you do it by going to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Well, let me get past this. Revelation chapter 13, 13, 13.8. Now, the context. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 talks about spiritual gifts, and it lists them out. And apostles are first, prophets are second, and then it goes on down through the list. And it has revelatory gifts, and it has service gifts. It has miraculous gifts and service gifts. And then, then... and, of course, the Corinthians are all distorted on the importance and significance of the, of the spiritual gifts. And they've elevated tongues. And that has to do with their whole background and ecstatic utterance coming out of the uh, pagan religions and the worship of Apollo and what was going on up at the Temple of Delphi and the Oracle of Delphi who would get smell the vapors coming out of the ground and she would speak in tongues to give her oracles. And this was just speaking in some kind of ecstatic, ecstatic gibberish was just the standard M.O. for many of the mystery religions. And so that was the pagan frame of reference the Corinthians brought to tongues, not understanding that when God said he was going to speak in languages, it wasn't ecstatic utterance. It was real languages. Well, when you get down to 1 Corinthians 13, uh, Paul has been arguing that the real priority is not what spiritual gift you have, but having unconditional love for one another in the body of Christ. And so he defines love in the first seven verses. And then he is going to emphasize the priority of love over these spiritual gifts. And in verse 8 he says, Love never fails. But if there are, and there are, gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. And if there is knowledge, it will be done away. Now what we see in verse 8 are two points. First of all, there is a contrast between the permanence of love and the impermanence of the revelatory gifts, prophecy, and knowledge. Tongues is just secondary in this whole passage. The focus is on, as we'll see in a minute, on, on prophecy and knowledge. But here's the thing. You have to catch this. The issue is love is permanent, but these gifts are temporary. That's the point. Now, how temporary? That's the question. But the point he's making is love is permanent, these revelatory gifts are temporary. So it's the contrast between permanence and impermanence. The second point he's making is, that we need to observe here is that prophecy and knowledge 
are both said to be abolished. And the Greek word is katargeo, and it's used in both, with both of those gifts. Now, I, I, I'm not, I think I have a New American Standard up there for the English. And in the NASB, at least they translated katargeo the same way in both places. And King James doesn't. I don't know why translators do that. If the, if the Holy Spirit uses one word and, and, and it's repeated four or five times in a passage, then you ought to translate it consistently with the same English so people can, can trace the flow. Because that's what opens up this whole passage. Knowledge, uh, prophecy is going to be abolished. Katargeo. Knowledge is going to be abolished. Sandwiched in between is a statement that tongues will cease. It's a different verb. And it's a different voice in the Greek, which makes it stand out. Okay? Next slide. Love never fails. That's the Greek word pipto, and it means it's not going to falter. It is permanent. It's permanent. Now, on this slide, I've added the, the Greek verb for tongues will cease. It's the verb pao, and it's in the future middle indicative. Now, middle voice, a lot of people make a big deal about it. It's not that, I mean, it's syntactically, it's not, it's not that significant a case. What's significant is the change of voice. There's no reason to change the voice. What's significant is the, by the change of voice and change of verb, the author's making a point that whatever is happening with tongues is going to precede whatever happens with the prophecy and knowledge. So by the time they pass off the scene, you know tongues has already passed off the scene. That's what's implicit here. By the, if, not, if knowledge and prophecy end, then you know tongues has already been off the scene. But tongues isn't our point tonight. It's revelation. There's the emphasis. Prophecy will be done away. Knowledge will be done away. Circle those in your Bible and connect them together because we're going to run that down to the next occurrence of these of the verb katargeo. Verse 8, two things, permanence of love versus the impermanence of these two gifts. Future tense, they will be abolished. Okay? Difference between katargeo is a future passive and pao is a future middle. Now, verse 9, short verse. For we know in part... And we prophesy in part. What are we talking about in this verse? We're talking about the spiritual gift of knowledge and the spiritual gift of prophecy. Spiritual gift of knowledge and the spiritual gift of prophecy. That's what we just talked about in the previous verse. There we were said these two are going to be abolished. Now we learn something about their characteristic. They're in part. The Greek is ek merus, which means they're partial. They're fragmentary. That means Paul didn't know everything there was to know about New Testament church age revelation. He only knew part of it. He had part of the picture. Peter had another part of the picture. John had another part of the picture. Jude had another part. James had another part. But all were needed in the body of Christ to give the complete and sufficient revelation of the New Testament. So that those who had the spiritual gift of knowledge didn't see the whole picture. They only had a piece of the puzzle. Same thing with those who prophesied. Now, these are both revelatory gifts. We come to verse 10. Verse 10 adds something new. It says, When that which is perfect comes, 
than that which is in part ekmerus. What's in part? Prophecy and knowledge. That's what the, first, the previous verse said. Knowledge and prophecy are partial. When the perfect comes, the partial is done away with. Was tongue said to be partial? No. Knowledge and prophecy are partial. That's what we're talking about. Knowledge and prophecy are partial. And they will be done away with. There's katargeo again. You see how the Greek ties these concepts together. It's all connected. You have a strings that tie them all together. Prophecy and knowledge. Are, what, what is it that's going to stop them? Something called the perfect is going to stop it. And this is the Greek word teleios. T-E-L-E-I-O-S. Teleios. So the perfect replaces the partial, that is, knowledge and prophecy, which is at that point abolished. That's what katargeo means. So when the perfect comes, the partial's abolished. Now that's the question, is when does the perfect come? Has it come already or is it going to come in the future? Well, there are a couple of different views. Let's just review where we are. First of all, we said there's a significance in the shift in verbs and voice in verse 8, from katargeo to pao. Second thing is we have to understand the meaning of the perfect teleos in verse 10. That's what ends the partial. So when, what's the perfect? Verse 3, the, there's a temporal shift in verses 12 and 13. From now and then. But now we see through a mirror dimly, but then face to face. That's, we have to pay attention to that. And fourth, we have to understand the next two illustrations, next two verses, because they're illustrative. Those are the interpretive keys to the passage. Okay, back to the observations. I think we've covered this enough. Seven interpretations of the perfect. If you read all the commentaries, you can line them up this way. There's really only two categories. One is the idea that the perfect means completion. The other is the idea that perfect means perfection in the sense of flawlessness. Completion or flawlessness. Technically what this means is, is quantitative. See, you have a small quantity, it's incomplete, and it's going to be completed. Versus quant, uh, qualitative. It's imperfect, so that's going to be perfect. There are two views that are usually taught. I don't know why people differentiate. They, 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 they really connect together. One is the completed canon view. Now, that's a view I hold. The completed canon view. That When that, the canon is completed, then these revelatory gifts end. It only makes sense because if they're revelatory gifts, whatever is going to complete them has to also be revelatory. The same kind of thing. Others have said, well, no, it's the mature church because verse 12 has the idea of when I, uh, when I was a child, I thought as a child, spoke as a child, and acted like a child, but when I was an adult, I put away childish things. But what makes the church mature is a complete canon. It moves from immaturity in the apostolic age because it has an incomplete canon. So these really connect together. They're just different sides of the same coin. Now, in perf the perfection grew, the, the people who think that the perfect means some kind of perfect state or flawless condition 
whatever it boils down to, it's being absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord, whether you're talking about at death and now you're face-to-face with the Lord so you have a fuller comprehension, whether it happens at the rapture, whether it happens at the second coming or at the eternal state, or some get real scholarly say it's at the eschaton. That means the last day sometime. They just don't nail it down. But see, the idea here is that it happens somehow at death when you're no longer in this mortal body. Now, this is the beauty of this. Anybody can understand what I'm getting ready to say. 1 Corinthians 13.11 gives us the basic illustrative overview. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, and I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. The point here is is there's a transition between childhood and adulthood. When you're a child, you act like a child. There are certain things that are characteristic of being a child that are no longer present in the life of, a, of, of an adult. When you have everything as, as an adult, you put away the childish things. That's all Paul is saying here, is that there's a transition. And once you become mature, you put away things that are characteristic of childhood. That's the analogy he's using. Revelation was necessary in the infancy of the church because they didn't have a complete canon. But once it's complete, they don't need to have those gifts continue. Verse 12, he says, For now, and this he uses, he uses a Greek word for now that is RT. What's interesting is that in the next verse, in verse 12, he says, but now continue faith, hope, and love. The now there is a different Greek word. It's the Greek word nuni. Now, what's the difference? I mean, they both mean now. Well, I was digging around in uh, Kittle's Theological Dictionary in a footnote of a footnote almost, and the author makes a comment that, Although there's a lot of similarity and overlap between the two synonyms, when they're used in the same context, RT means right now, the immediate now, and Nuni means now in a broader general sense. Like now in this post in this now in this pre-canon period versus now in this church age. So it distinguishes an immediate right now today versus now in this age. Okay? So what Paul says is for now, that is right now, in the immediate present, we see in a mirror dimly. But then, when the canon, and and I believe this is when the canon is complete, but then we'll see face-to-face. Now, everybody wants to take face-to-face to mean face-to-face with the Lord. It cannot mean face-to-face with the Lord, not if you care about Scripture. And I'll show you why in a minute. This is what you hang it on. The face-to-face isn't face-to-face with the Lord. It's face-to-face with the Word. And then Paul goes on to say, Now, I, see, all of that has... The, 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 this ha- the first half of the verse deals with prophecy. The second half deals with knowledge. Now, that is right now, RT, I know in part, Ekmerus again. See how it ties right back to knowledge is partial? I know in part... But then I shall know fully, just as I have also been known. So the issue is, when's the then? The then is when the perfect comes. 
The perfect is going to complete something that's incomplete. Knowledge and prophecy are incomplete. Well, the first thing we have to recognize is in verse uh, verse 12, when Paul uses that mirror image, what do you see in a mirror? You see yourself. You get confused in the King James because it says when we see through a glass darkly. That has the idea of looking through a, a glass. But it's a, a, a reflecting glass. That was a terminology they used in Elizabethan England for a mirror. When we see in a mirror dimly, and the word there is enigma, which is where we get our English word enigma. It's used in the Septuagint to translate a, a word in, uh, in Numbers 12, 6 through 8. God is speaking to Moses and says, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. We saw that as different ways God reveals himself. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. With him I speak mouth to mouth. See, it's the same idea, face to face almost. Even openly and not in dark sayings, not in enigma. See, enigma was a term that has to do with, with often with the, the, the uncertainness of the application or fulfillment of prophetic sayings. So what that what 1 Corinthians 13, uh, 12 is saying is now in this at this time we see in a mirror enigmatically. We don't understand how it all fits together. Why? Because the, all the pieces in the mirror aren't there. Knowledge is partial. Prophecy is partial. We don't have a complete mirror. You ever get up in the morning and get stand in front of a mirror and big pieces are out of it? You've got to look all around for it. Now I know myself in part, but then I shall know myself. Then when? When that mirror is complete. It's got to be revelation. And here's the chart. You have two periods. You have a pre-canon apostolic period during which time revelation is given and the canon is built from A.D. 33 to 95. And then you have a post-apostolic period in the church age from 95 on. Verse 13 opens it up, but now continues faith, hope, and love, these three. The greatest of these is love. And people just stop there and emote on how great love is. But pay attention. The issue through this whole passage is when does the perfect come? When, what's the difference between the now and the then? When do we decide that the now's over with and we're now living in the then when we're face to face? If you take the, the, the qualitative view that it has to do with when you're absent from the body, either face-to-face with the Lord at death, rapture, second coming, eschaton, whatever it may be, what you have to say is that now, in the, that now faith, hope, and love are continuing. But so do knowledge and prophecy. Because in that view, knowledge and prophecy continue until the perfect comes, which is death or the second coming. So if we're talking about the permanence of love versus the impermanence of knowledge and prophecy, then what you say in their position is that that knowledge and prophecy are going to continue all the way through to the time Jesus comes back. 
but so is faith, hope, and love. But then knowledge and prophecy will cease when Jesus comes back because we'll be in his presence. But in their view, faith, hope, and love have to continue beyond that point. See, this is my point. Faith, hope, and love can't continue beyond the point of the second coming. So there has to be a different dividing point. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says that right now we walk by faith and not by sight. But when we're in the presence of the Lord, we're going to be walking by sight and not by faith. Faith is limited to this dispensation or this time on earth. Hebrews 11.1 or 11.3 says, Faith is the evidence of things not seen. Once you're dead, you're going to see. You're going to be face to face with the Lord. So faith can't continue beyond the second coming. The, the, The charismatic position is that knowledge and prophecy continue all the way up to the second coming. That faith, hope, and love would have then have to, because of the context, would have to continue beyond that. But you see, the passage is saying that love is permanent. Knowledge and prophecy are impermanent. Love, faith, hope, and love now continue as opposed to knowledge and prophecy. Well, if after we die and we're face-to-face with the Lord, faith is no longer operational, we have to recognize that on the basis of Romans 8.24... Hope isn't operational after we're face-to-face with the Lord either. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one also hope for what he sees? See, once you see the Lord come, hope ends, because hope is confident expectation related to a future destiny. When that future destiny is realized, hope is no longer there. It's realized. So hope and faith end with the second coming with the rapture, whatever, whatever your perfect is, hope and faith have to end there. What continues beyond that is love into the eternal state. That means that whatever, that, that whatever ends prophecy and knowledge has to come a long time before the second coming or death or the rapture, whatever it is. That means that some event in time has to end prophecy and knowledge. And the only thing that can be is the completed canon, which is also said to be perfect over in uh, James chapter 1. I'll give you a reference in just a minute. That's in James uh, chapter 1, verse... uh, 25, he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it is not a forgetful hearer. Or, excuse me, um, verse 23, the one who looks into the Word is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. So the Word there is, and it's then called the perfect law, two verses later, in verse uh, 25, the perfect law, that's teleos. So you have the mirror analogy and perfect, both used in James 1, 23, and 25, which indicate that that's the canon. Anyway, More can be said on this, but the point is that 1 Corinthians 13 clearly shows that it's over with. Revelatory gifts ended. This is further based on Ephesians 2.20, that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. 
you only use, you only lay a foundation once. You don't lay a foundation in every generation. Otherwise, it's not a foundation. You only lay a foundation one time. It was laid in the first century. Once that foundation was laid, which was the canon of Scripture, then there's no ongoing revelation. It's over with. This is so critical today because what we see everywhere is people coming along and saying there's new revelation. Now, what I had wanted to do at this point, but I don't have the time because we've already run over, is I wanted to run down how special revelation, this, this idea of continuing revelation, filters down and impacts what's going on in terms of real time, in terms of news events of, of recent days. I guess I'll have to start with that next time. Because you almost have to understand who the players are so you can keep track on your scorecard. I recently spoke with somebody whose father, who has been in a doctrinal church for years and really ought to know better if he had really understood what he was taught, gave him a copy of Joel Osteen's recent book that's a bestseller. And we just had the episode out in Atlanta where this, this uh, uh, Brian Nichols escaped, and then the, the the lady who talked him down was reading to him from Rick Warren's book, Purpose Driven Life. Now, if you want to know the rest of the story, then you'll be here next Thursday night. Because these aren't just books that have hit popularity. There is a whole... It's almost like they're the tip of the iceberg, and there's a whole iceberg of ongoing, revelatory, charismatic revelation that lies behind both of those books. And see, if you don't know that, you're just going to think, well, maybe I'll get something good out of this. And you're just going to the devil's blueprint to try to live your own life. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this time this evening. Understand that your word has ceased, and therefore... It has a highest priority. Nothing is more important than to know your word and to live it out in our lives. We pray that you would challenge us with the things we studied this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.